something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything In the silent light Of the Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. This episode is available to everyone, courtesy of the new documentary film series, Four Died Trying, which premiered on November 22nd on Apple TV and other streaming services. You can now buy the Four Died Trying prologue on Amazon. Four Died Trying explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. The next chapter should be available any day now, I'm told. Now, courtesy of Four Died Trying, here is some unreported news about President John F. Kennedy. Remember, they didn't just kill him, they killed the story. President Kennedy's peace speech major step in easing Cold War tension with Russia. President John F. Kennedy chose the June 10, 1963 American University commencement ceremony to address, quote, the most important topic on earth, world peace, unquote. Less than a year out from the Cuban Missile Crisis, a standoff which nearly sparked nuclear war, Kennedy spoke of the madness of war in the nuclear age Invoking the world's narrow escape from doomsday in October of 1962, Kennedy told the crowd, I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age when great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to these forces. It makes no sense in an age when a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Although the national media has barely acknowledged the speech, it is worth looking closely at the president's words. Kennedy's peace speech goes much further than Eisenhower's cross of iron speech. Kennedy at American University also went further than Ike's 1961 farewell address, which called attention to the threat posed to democracy by the military-industrial complex. And the president went farther than in his previous Senate and White House speeches. Anticipating the reaction from hardline Cold Warriors, Kennedy addressed the issue of the Soviet Union. I believe we can help the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitude, as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace, should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude toward the possibilities of peace, toward the Soviet Union, toward the course of the Cold War, and toward freedom and peace here at home. 
More specifically, Kennedy announced the U.S. and Soviets had agreed to high-level talks with the aim of establishing a comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty. He also announced that the U.S. would unilaterally suspend atmospheric nuclear testing so long as other countries refrain from carrying out such tests. Kennedy further stated that the United States' primary long-range interest in arms control is general and complete disarmament designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace which would take the place of arms. Kennedy acknowledged that the quest for peace would be difficult, but he admonished those who would forego the struggle. Too many of us think peace is impossible. Too many think it unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. Having escaped nuclear doomsday last October, the president seems to be looking to further cement his place in history. Can American leadership harness the internationalist energy of the moment? Could the richest and most powerful nation in world history partner with its bitter rival superpower and begin a global reorientation away from war and conflict? Ultimately, argued the president, it was in the interests of the American and Soviet peoples to set aside grievance and enmity to secure a peaceful future for both countries and for the world. This, Kennedy argued, is a worthy goal regardless of whether the philosophical arguments between capitalists and communists can ever be resolved. For in the final analysis, the president pleaded, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet, we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. For today's episode, I wanted to give a presentation that I spent a great many hours putting together for a symposium held by the International Center for 9-11 Justice and UK Column. Uh, the symposium was moderated by Dr. Pierce Robinson, and it's called Genocide and Empire, Examining October 7 and the Geopolitics of the War on Palestine. I was lucky enough to be joined by the great retired professor Richard Falk, uh, who's really an expert on international law and the former uh, special rapporteur for uh, Palestinian human rights at the UN, as I recall. Uh, also Professor Atif Kubersi, uh, Vanessa Beely, the journalist, and Kevin Ryan, who's a 9-11 whistleblower and a researcher who's done a lot of work on 9-11 and related issues. This symposium, uh, it went, I enjoyed being a part of it. Uh, I had half an hour and my presentation was something that shouldn't have really been condensed into a half an hour, so I didn't get to the last few slides, which were kind of the money part of the presentation. Uh, so I'm going to try to present these now without any sort of time constraints, uh, because it was difficult for me to rush through this during that presentation, and I didn't even really get to the, to the end, which I was able to sort of rephrase towards the end or repurpose my thoughts uh, during the panel discussion but I thought it would be best to take all of this, which I spent a good bit of time on, and which is relevant to all the people that subscribe here and to people that watch this on YouTube or wherever else. So I think that this is an important thing to be putting out here for me personally, and hopefully uh, you will agree. 
the talk that I gave was called Hegemonic Panic, Alexa Flood as Deep Event. And this refers to the October 7 attack, a uh, military operation that Hamas and other Palestinian groups launched, which of course sparked this horrific genocide in response from the Israeli government. So I want to talk about some of these ways that scholars, a small group of scholars, have tried to look at high crimes that are denied uh, by the state. So this phenomenon in post-World War II world of the clandestine state committing crimes or carrying out covert operations that have impacts on domestic and international politics. Peter Dale Scott is the father of parapolitics, and eventually parapolitics was just more or less conspiratorial statecraft, right? Covert operations and all this. Uh, and he eventually came to think that this was too narrow and that this concept had kind of been adopted by certain less scholarly people uh, out in the broader community. And so he wanted to look more at deep politics instead, specifically like all of those things that are really suppressed rather than just dis discussed in mainstream discourse. Part of these or a subset of all of this is the deep event, mysterious events that involve violence and or lawbreaking are embedded in extant covert activities, serve to enlarge state secrecy, and are subsequently obscured systematically by the state and the media. So we've had many of these things, things that happen and you just know you're never going to get to the bottom of it uh, and that it comes from something in the nether, the clandestine nether world, but that because of that fact, you will never really get to the bottom of it. So we've had a number of these just in recent years, like Russiagate, uh, the Epstein case, for example, these are just a, a couple of them. The Nord Stream bombing is another one. So the two people, the two academics that I want to focus on as really having tried to do some serious work in these areas are Lance DeHaven Smith, public administration scholar. Uh, his theory of state crimes against democracy are SCADs. These are concerted actions or inactions by government insiders intended to manipulate democratic processes and undermine popular sovereignty. Peter Dale Scott has what he calls the structural deep event. And these are events which violate the American social structure, have a major impact on American society, repeatedly involve lawbreaking or violence, and in many cases proceed from an unknown dark force. So for, there's a lot of overlap here. For example, they would both describe the JFK assassination as respectively a state crime against democracy or a structural deep event, if it's Professor Scott. My own work, academic work, has been to try to provide a synthesis for this scholarship, a synthesis of Peter Dell Scott's work and Lance DeHaven Smith's work and also the work of people like C. Wright Mills and so on. Um, now, Peter Dell Scott spoke to me about SCAD theory, about Lance's work, and he said that it has merit, the SCAD construct has merit and could be useful, but it should be amended to signify that the JFK assassination and cover-up represented a de-SCAD or a deep state crime against democracy, which is, I think, valid, but, uh, you know, interesting, full of interesting things to unpack if we had more time to just explore, explore this. But I'm not going to go too deep on this because I want to apply it to actual real-world events. Lance DeHaven Smith told me personally that the scholarship that he had been a part of on SCADs, uh, it all lacked an explicit theory of the state or of the role of economic elites. So my focus has been to try to synthesize these things, uh, to look at what Peter Dale Scott's 
deep politics framework had to offer and take what was best of that. And then also what Lance had done. Uh, and eventually the outcome of this is that I get my doctorate. After many years, I had to also be teaching full time and had a kid and was quite busy. But eventually I got the dissertation uh, written and approved. And this got published as a book by Skyhorse, uh, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Another academic who we should look at in this regard is a person named William, Willem Bart DeLint. He's a European. I have not been in contact with him. I did a little bit of searching to try to find his email and I was never able to, uh, but I would like to bring him on American Exception or Devil's Chess Club at some point. He talks about apex crime, uh, a watershed event involving government in the support of a contested political and social order and its primary opponent as the obvious offender, which is then subject to a confirmation bias. So examples of an apex crime where the culprit is the primary opponent of this social order that exists uh, would be the JFK assassination. Okay, the Patsy ends up being a communist. And it's also worth noting as the US regime and this global dominance regime, you know, evolved over time, the next big patsy, the next big deep event or state crime against democracy was going to have a patsy. And that one was in the, a Palestinian. Although I guess the MLK case happens a couple months before this. Generally, probably the same people were involved in that. But notice here, the person that kills the brother of the slain President JFK, the person who kills Robert F. Kennedy is uh, presumed to be a Palestinian. Okay, that's no accident that I think is very significant in terms of showing how the uh, Zionist element of the American deep state is a, a real thing. Uh, because he, this person could not have shot Robert F. Kennedy. He was in front of him uh, three to six feet and Robert F. Kennedy was killed by a shot fired from behind at point, point blank from right to left as though somebody was standing right behind him with a gun drawn, holding it in their right hand up to his ear and shooting him in the head, probably a security guard named Thane Eugene Caesar. But because this is an apex crime, which is the key here, the key about the apex crime and the reason why I think it's, it actually does add something, it's very succinct, it's very perfect. He, he added something very valuable just with this definition and this, this um, the, the term and the definition. It's that it comes from the very top. It comes from the apex of power, which is why you'll never be able to investigate it because you need higher and higher authority as it goes up to investigate and adjudicate these crimes. And if the apex is the guilty party, the apex can intervene to make sure that it is not properly investigated. And this happens time and time and time and time again. So if we wanna look at October 7 as potentially a deep event or a state crime against democracy, uh, there's a number of circumstantial things that point to this possibility. Now, I'm not, I don't really have a strong position one way or another about trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do and, or, or, or what happened. And I also think that because it does appear to come from the very pinnacle of the, you know, Israeli and probably some elements of the US side, if there were any chicanery here, all historical evidence would lead you to conclude that we will never get the full story of it because the only authorities that could investigate this and adjudicate this are enthralled to the apex of power. And so we will not get an investigation on this. So I'm not really even 
saying we should start some sort of 10-7 truth movement or anything like that. Uh, because, I mean, of course we should try to press for answers, but realistically, these things are tightly held. And if there's anything that's really damning, they will just prevent it from coming out. So among those things that are circumstantial and point to this being possibly a deep event of some kind is the ignored warnings, okay? The fact that there were a number of stories from different angles of people who had foreknowledge or some clue that there were uh, potentially attacks coming out of, out of Gaza, and these were ignored. Uh, this is very strange. They were systematically ignored even though they turned out to be true. Additionally, we had insider trading, just as there was on 9-11, and with JFK, there was some insider trading as well. Uh, some, the guy that owned the Texas School Book Depository building uh, made a huge profit uh, with the military contracts right after the Vietnam War was kicked off. Uh, so here again, thanks to Kit Clarenberg, uh, he's written about this. Suspicious Israeli stock market activity hints at foreknowledge of October 7 attack. So that's interesting. Then there's the friendly fire angle. Uh, Mint Press with this helpful graphic here, an Israeli general who admits uh, ordering Israeli tanks to fire on houses that contained Israeli captives on October 7. So a lot of some of those that died, maybe the majority of the of the civilians who were killed could, for all we know, were killed by the Israelis. Uh, we don't really know. It raises the possibility that this was a mass Hannibal directive. What we witnessed on what we saw reported on October 7. The Hannibal Directive was an Israeli military initiative that uh, ma maintained or, or a sort of plan. I mean, they call it a doctrine sometimes or whatever. The point is, under Hannibal, the, the Israeli military would rather see Israeli captured Israeli servicemen killed uh, rather than allowed to be taken hostage. They don't want to give Hamas or any other Palestinian group, the leverage that a hostage would have. And so you just kill them, problem solved. No hostage, no problem, apparently, is the logic of the Israeli military. So was that logic applied on October 7? Did Israel, realizing perhaps that they were going to, they not only suffered a surprise, presumably surprise military defeat of a, a number of their military installations, but then that Hamas and allied uh, factions might be able to return to Gaza with a whole lot of Israeli civilians as hostages, did they calculate that actually it would be better to not give them the hostages and then look at the use the dead hostages as uh, more evidence of uh, or more of a pretext to allow Israel to take more drastic military action against Gaza, which they apparently wanted to do because that's what they're doing now. So what really happened? Did Hamas even have plans to go after civilians. Additionally, another thing that makes this seem like a potential deep event is the way that immediately we saw false reports and they were generally all skewed in one direction, in the direction that would exaggerate hyperbolically uh, atrocities committed by the people who had escaped the Gaza concentration camp on October 7. So uh, this, this graphic just highlights the, uh, the misinformation or disinformation around that Al-Shifa hospital, but other infamous cases involve uh, 40 beheaded babies and these strange stories about uh, rape victims that are not well substantiated at all, are so thinly sourced as to be almost not sourced at all, 
uh, Max Blumenthal has done good work uh, dissecting these. So again, these false reports indicate that uh, there was a lot of uh, pre-existing type agenda material that was going to be utilized uh, in the aftermath of this event. The treatment of hostages makes it seem harder to believe that Hamas was out there doing all the horrible things that we've heard in some of the worst reports. The reports from the hostages show that uh, they treated these people very well. I mean, this is just a a glimpse of some of the things that they were saying, but others said that, you know, they were told that like we would die before you would die if it came down to it. And this does not jive with the idea that they were going around slicing people up uh, and uh, raping people, uh, wantonly slaughtering, dismembering people. Uh, this just does, does not, it doesn't seem to uh, be congruent with this. And it also would seem to be not in the interests of Hamas to do uh, anything like that. They would not want to delegitimize their case. It seems like the idea of taking hostages and treating them well would be to win uh, more support for their case internationally. Uh, and uh, this just doesn't seem to accord with what, what we have seen. We also have the tricky uh, problem posed by the fact that Hamas seems to have been largely created by Israel. This is not to say that they are fake, like Israeli Israelis pretending to be Hamas. The point is that Israel seems to have wanted to support this group in order to make it a uh, more powerful counter to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And the reason for that seems to be that they wanted to make sure that there couldn't be a viable Palestinian state. And so Hamas being separate from the PLO and, and you're, you're it would be uh, an unsympathetic and different entity. And, then it, and Israel could say, well, these are unreasonable terrorists who want to kill us all, and we don't have any partner for peace. See, we really can't give them a, a, their own state. It's not our fault. We're, we, we would love to, gosh, but we just can't. These barbarians, uh, these terrorists, they're too crazy. Um, whereas the, the people in Hamas did have legitimate grievances and probably had a burning hatred for Israel, uh, as probably any of us would if we were in their shoes. Uh, but the, it's worth noting that, it, that Israel created Hamas uh, because it wanted an unsympathetic partner, quote-unquote, in Palestine. And uh, then they point to them and say, look at these guys, look at what maniacs they are. We can't possibly negotiate with them. I guess we're just going to have to, to slaughter every man, woman, and child, uh, although they don't say that last part. That's just more the policy. Another very suspicious and disturbing aspect of this whole uh, episode is that shortly after October 7, a think tank uh, leaked, or a, a document from a think tank, a report from an Israeli think tank commissioned by Israeli intelligence, uh, laid out how Israel really wanted to pursue ethnic cleansing in Gaza. They talk about different options about how they might deal with this plan, uh, deal with the problems in Gaza, but the only one they really like is option C, evacuation of the civilian population from Gaza to Sinai. Uh, they write here, option C, the option that would yield positive and long-term strategic results for Israel and is a feasible option. So this is the one that they liked. They knew very early or beforehand that they would like to just get everybody out of Gaza and then presumably build, um, you know, luxury condos or uh, offshore drilling rigs because there's a lot of gas off the off of Gaza. Uh, whatever reason they wanted to do this, 
this is uh, tantamount to genocide, uh, according to the genocide convention, this forced ethnic cleansing. Their longstanding opposition to Palestinian statehood is clearly uh, problematic, and it makes them seem guilty of, uh, you know, a number of things. This headline here, this is a Common Dreams article, Netanyahu has boasted he's the only one who will prevent a Palestinian state. So if that's his official position and he's saying it out loud and they've said other things about how they want to remove the Palestinians totally, it's just quite clear what is happening here. Uh, and that's really relevant for the genocide trial that is, that's going on. It also just points to the possibility that 10-7 was, there was more to 10-7 than uh, is on the surface. This is all a part of the larger and sordid history of war as being almost invariably the deepest of deep events. By that, I mean that you can't really just go and attack a country out of the blue. You have to have some sort of pretext, even if you are a vicious outlaw nation, as you will see here uh, with some of the examples that I come up with. Uh, it's a top-down thing. And typically, countries go to war when they want to go to war. And they, it, it's not these random black swan events that, oh, no, now all of a sudden we have to go to war. I mean, oftentimes, wars are planned for, for geopolitical objectives, and uh, that's, that's the cause of, of wars. But a pretext is always needed. So in the U.S., there's a number of these. But I'm going to focus more on the U.S. side, but generally, I, I want to look at a, at a few of them, especially in fascist countries anyway, because I think that's really relevant. So in 1845 in the U.S., we had the Thornton Affair, and this was a skirmish in disputed territory uh, between Texas and Mexico. And the, the Texas part of the U.S., being part of the U.S., was a very dubious thing. I'm not even going to try to get into that, but it's a bunch of slave owners who uh, wanted to basically create their own slave republic and stole that piece of land and pretended not to be affiliated with the U.S., and then eventually they joined the U.S., uh, but it was really a slave power conspiracy, essentially, to steal Texas. And then that is uh, later, it, it, Texas is annexed, and this there's a disputed area between the Nueces and Rio Grande River, and Zach Taylor, who would later go on to be president, had troops in this disputed area, and there's one of his uh, outfits got into a skirmish. This is called the Thornton Affair, and this is used as the pretext to start the Mexican-American War, uh, and that is how the U.S. is able to steal California and Arizona and Utah, uh, New Mexico, uh, from uh, the, from Mexico. They finally are able to seal the deal here by landing in the exact same spot, more or less, where, where Cortez landed and sacking Mexico City, just as Cortez sacked the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. In 1895, you had a, a Japanese uh, deep event, which uh, was a part of this conflict over Korea, this imperial conflict. And what's interesting about this is how it shows, again, how Jap Japan really became a Western country. They, they, almost, they became uh, honorary white people in terms of their policies because they studied uh, white people in industrialized countries uh, and copied their methods. And then they ended up copying imperialism as well. Uh, and an example of this would be when they went into Korea and this more nationalist-minded uh, queen, uh, head of state, Queen Min, was 
killed by black ocean operatives, which was like a kind of a Japanese version of the CIA or a CIA cutout. Uh, it was run by an ex samurai who'd made a bunch of money in, in mining, I believe. So very, you know, old money combined with corporate new corporate money. And, uh, and he becomes essentially a spook uh, doing th international chicanery abroad, including killing this queen. And the assailants were, they dress up as Koreans. So even here, you have chicanery in an attempt to try to make it look like it was something other than it was. Uh, so this is Japan doing this in 1895. You have the, in the U.S., you have the USS Maine, and that was uh, an explosion of a U.S. Navy frigate uh, in Havana Harbor, and it gets blamed on the Spanish. When the Spanish had actually said, please don't park this ship here. We're afraid it might blow up and we don't really want you to attack us. So please, can you not park this here? They did anyway. It blew up and they did blame the Spanish and eventually the U.S. enter this war and uh, they seize Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Guam. And this is a huge part of uh, the U.S. becoming an overseas empire uh, after really being a continental empire up to this point. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand is the uh, catalyst for World War One, and this is done by a Serbian nationalist group. But some people uh, have speculated, like uh, Guido Preparata, that uh, this m was likely the work of uh, the British using their, you know, intelligence chicanery. Uh, this Black Hand nationalist group may have been backed by the British. Um, I am not an expert on this particular case, but it would not surprise me at all. Really, nothing that you could tell me bad that the British did would be too shocking to me. Uh, they are uh, among the most vicious imperialists uh, in human history. The Mukden incident is, again, uh, involving Japan. And here you had Japanese imperialists who staged a bombing of a Japanese railway in Manchuria, tried to blame it on uh, the Chinese or the Manchurians. Uh, and this was uh, used as a pretext for greater Japanese in involvement militarily in China. The Reichstag fire is notorious. This is where the Nazis set fire to the German parliament building uh, and blamed a communist and, and had him hanged. Uh, and this was used as a pretext for the Enabling Act, and, uh, which gave Hitler, you know, absolute power and, and so on. Uh, the Nuremberg tribunals found that the Nazis were guilty of doing this and that they had used this as a pretext to set power. The problem was, as Peter Dale Scott has talked to me about, we, I have a, a dossier of maybe unpublished material that Peter has on has done on this. The problem was that because the U.S. really rescues a lot of these Nazis and such, after the war, a lot of the people that had been involved in this Reichstag event uh, were in positions of power. And so it became necessary to just create some history after the fact of like, oh, it was just this one guy that did this, this one crazy, wacky dude. They, they, Nuremberg said the Nazis did it, but that's just because they were gripped with anti-Nazi mania, and it was really just this one guy. But there were many fires set in many places across this that it couldn't have been one person that did this, uh, as, as Peter lays out. Uh, it's funny, though, of course, a good example of how useless the left is on these issues, the, like, establishment left, the professional left. Uh, Jacobin Magazine, which is, you know, I think the poster child for the compatible left in the uh, 2020s in the U.S. Uh, the headline here, how the Nazis exploited the Reichstag fire to launch a reign of terror. <laughs> Why not just say 
how the Nazis staged the Reichstag fire to launch a reign of terror. But this is, uh, you know, the nerd bag left. They just are, they, they, whatever the state tells them is the truth. They'll say, okay, we don't want to make you angry. We don't want to, we don't want you to cause conspiracy theorists. It's, you know, yes, sir. The Gleewitz incident, and I found a write-up of this, and these, these graphics actually come from the Daily Mail, which is not my go-to source, but this conforms to what actually happened here. Um, the, even the Nazis, who we know were, you know, uh, immoral and unethical characters, uh, notoriously so, even they couldn't just go into Poland uh, out of the blue. They had to stage something for it, so they had people dressed up as uh, Polish uh, military, I believe, and then uh, they stage this fake uh, attack on German targets, and then that leads to the invasion. So this is remarkable that you know even the Nazis had to like make up a story. Pearl Harbor, of course, there's all kinds of questions as to what foreknowledge the U.S. had. It seems at the very least uh, FDR wanted uh, Japan to enter the war. They kind of made it inevitable or likely that this would happen when they put an oil embargo and a scrap metal embargo on them following the Japanese invasion of, of Indochina, I believe is when this happens. Uh, so the Japanese were freaked out and thinking like, well, we got to find a way to get a supply of oil and, and work things out with the U.S. or else we're going to have to attack them, uh, you know, around November or December. Uh, they never are able to, to work out this deal. And so they decide that they're just going to go and knock out Pearl Harbor and then with that, they can take over the rest of the European colonies. So they do. Uh, and what's notable is that what Japan, the Japanese were doing in the Pacific was really taking over territories that were illegitimately colonized and dominated by white people, white Europeans and Americans. So this wasn't as though these people are free, love, free, happy, prosperous people. These are colonized, exploited people. And then the Japanese just decide that they would like to be the people colonizing and exploiting them. Uh, but to do that, they're going to have to knock out the U.S. military on this illegitimate installation on Hawaii, which was overthrown by a U.S.-backed coup in the first place. That's how it became part of the U.S. Uh, so it's a lot more, it's a lot less black and white than like them attacking us for no reason. But this isn't to put a white hat on Japan, obviously. Now, once the U.S. enters the war and nukes Japan, uh, it is poised to take over as global hegemon. And so your false flag dubious pretexts are more on the U.S. side at this point, from this point forward. Gulf of Tonkin incident is a notorious one. This is where there were ships that were not really fired upon on a night in, uh, in 1965, in 1964 rather, and uh, the intelligence is all sort of skewed one way to act as though this attack had happened. But what it really obscures is that, A, the attack didn't really happen, although they may have been fired at the night before. But more importantly, the skirmishes or the, uh, the, the fire that was exchanged had to do with illegal operations that the U.S. was launching uh, with southern Vietnamese people attacking the north uh, with some support from, the, from U.S. destroyers at sea. This was instead presented as an unprovoked attack. Uh, to, to the U.S. Congress, which then approved the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which authorized the Vietnam War, which, of course, LBJ waited until he'd won re-election to actually start. In reality, this was a non-attack uh, of a provocation. So there was a provocation, which was not even responded to, uh, but then it, it was reported as though they had been attacked. Uh, and this ends up killing, you know, 4 million Vietnamese people, 
two million Cambodians die in this war, half a million to a million Laotians, it's hard to say. And it's very closely related to the uh, one to three million Indonesians who get slaughtered. I mean, a lot hangs on these things. It has absolute, or has very little, almost nothing to do at all with the proximate cause, which is maybe we got shot at in the Gulf of Tonkin, but actually no. And, and somehow 8 million people are going to die because of this. Uh, bigger forces are at work. The 1965 Indonesia, as I just mentioned, uh, this episode is not exactly a pretext for a major war, but it's a, it's a pretext for a major slaughter uh, of a population. And it's a deep event, and I think it's worth looking at because it lets you see how dirty the game is. Uh, Suharto's U.S.-backed coup in Indonesia supplied a template for worldwide mass murder. This is in Jacobin. Now, this is an interesting case because uh, more has come out of this, but of course, the object of the U.S., whenever scandals do come, and you're going to have to reveal some things over decades and decades, they just want to minimize it. So increasingly, you just, you, well, at first you couldn't really talk about it at all. It was almost never discussed, except in really radical outlets, uh, the whole 1965 slaughter. But eventually more and more came out about it. Peter Del Scott did some of the best work on this. The really explosive remaining question is, did the, was the U.S. involved in the very bizarre coup that served as the pretext for this? And this is where I think it is relevant to the question of the false flag. Uh, there's plenty of reason to believe that Suharto was uh, a U.S. asset beforehand and that he was integral in the way that events played out on that night of uh, September 30th, October 1st. It was called the uh, G30S, which means like 30 September movement. And what happens is a, a number of generals who are moderate generals who are uh, pro-Sukarno are, uh, are killed by another group of generals uh, and they basically wipe out the uh, a whole sector of uh, pro-Sukarno generals. And then the right-wing generals come in and kill uh, these other generals and also all of the supporters of Sukarno who are part of the PKI, which was nominally communist, but really kind of Marxist, mostly the peasants who wanted land reform, mostly landless peasants is really what it was about. And in order to consolidate this new regime, they have to, and avoid something like what happened in Vietnam, they figured, well, we'll just preemptively destroy the insurgency of this new right-wing regime we want to put in so we can steal all these resources, essentially. And uh, we'll, we'll just kill everybody. We'll just kill everybody beforehand. That seems to be what happened. And there's uh, people like Greg Polgrain and Peter Dell Scott have done a lot of work on this over the years. Uh, Peter Dell Scott showed that in a 1985 article in Pacific Affairs, uh, he showed that the Lockheed payments bribery uh, network, months before this event happened, they shift they shifted money that they were sending out, you know, every month or something, uh, to a backer of Suharto instead of to a backer of the president Sukarno. So it shows that it would appear that. Suharto was a U.S. asset, a CIA asset, in the months leading up to G30S. And he comes out on top here. Uh, the J Jacobin wrote an article with a historian saying there's a debate among scholars how much you should uh, emphasize Western in involvement. The CIA was involved, but some of the American-focused scholarship, in a way, denies Indonesian agency and underplays the Indonesian role in these events. 
Okay, this is vintage cop out, you know, faux left, institutional left in the US. This is whenever there's something horrific in the third world in the global south or some bizarre thing that looks like covert action, but of course there's a cover story for it, sometimes involving protesters or otherwise using assets that are local. You just say that, oh, it, it's them. It was the Indonesians that did that. It was the Iranians that did that. It was the Chileans. If you say otherwise, then you're you're somehow the imperialist. You're taking people's agency away if you if you uh, attribute this to the CIA. Uh, this is ridiculous, uh, in my opinion. If you'd say Iran 53, they had all those street mobs the CIA organized. You could make that same argument. You could say, well, what, you're taking away their agency. What about all those Iranians out in the street? And they had legitimate grievances. But we know for certain that, that, that this was a CIA operation. The only thing different with Indonesia is they haven't really admitted it. But we do know from people like Ralph McGahey, he said, yeah, I was the custodian of a, a secret study that's never been released on Indonesia. And it was considered, the whole Indonesian operation was considered a, a master class, like a model of how we should handle covert operations. And they did invoke... Indonesia in Chile in 1973, just, you know, eight years later, they said Jakarta is coming. So this is, uh, there's every, it, it would be so serendipitous for that coup to have played out in just such a way that you would end up at the end of it with a CIA asset in charge of Indonesia and then a massacre of a half million to three million people, that that's just going to happen serendipitously. Uh, that doesn't, it's not really plausible to me, having read Peter Dale Scott and, and Greg Polgrain uh, and, and looked into this case a bit. So, again, we see not only the way that the game is played, but the fact that supposed left anti-imperialist people are kind of useless when it comes to confronting the, the deep state. They want to apologize for it. They want to say, oh, they, they wouldn't do that. And you're bad if you say that. You're taking away the agency of these people, as if that's not the, the whole... Uh, reason for being for the empire. 1973 Yom Kippur War, very strange war between two U.S. allies, essentially, the uh, Israelis and uh, uh, also on the other side, the uh, Egyptians and such. <laughs> I mean, this is strange. But what was it really about? Well, it led to a huge, um, it led to gas shortages because of the OPEC uh, embargo. And this led to a huge increase in the price of oil. And this helped the U.S. enormously because oh, there was a big dollar overhang because of Vietnam War spending. And other countries were starting to complain about this and want their money uh, for, for, to be exchanged for gold, their dollars. And the U.S. is kind of dallying about trying to come up with a new system and they're refusing to pay the gold. And then all of a sudden this happens. And then all the dollars that they have, the extra ones, end up flowing into the banks, uh, the central banks of oil producers. And then that goes into the Western financial system. It was a, a perfect scheme. And we have evidence that the U.S. was behind the rise in oil prices. Um, Sheikh Yamani, uh, I believe is the guy's name. He was the Saudi oil minister. And he came out years later. There's an a article in The Guardian, you know, around 2000 or so, where he says, um, the Shah was asking me, you know, why are you against the price of oil? And I said, well, it's it's the Henry Kissinger wants this. He wants he wants a, a big price uh, increase in the price of oil. Uh, so if the the Saudis and the Iranians are are doing this, taking orders from Kissinger, I mean, this is pretty well confirmed at this point that the U.S. was behind this huge increase, and it did help the U.S. geopolitically to deal with 
the crisis that the dollar was in, and it, it gave rise to a more powerful dollar regime, the one that we have now, where the dollar is not backed by anything except for the threat that they might kill you if you threaten the status of the dollar. Another important part in this story, which is now I'm, I, I want to sort of shift to kind of narratives into that lead up to how we got to October 7, uh, is to look at George H.W. Bush and his obscure now uh, run-in with the Israel lobby. This came from the Times of Israel. Uh, they had an article, How Lonely Little George Bush Changed the U.S.-Israeli Relationship. Uh, it says that he beat APAC. Supposedly, I don't know why he says that, but lost 24% of his Jewish backing after confronting Israel over the settlements. It's a lesson U.S. leaders have since taken to heart. One of the most controversial moments in his single-term presidency was when Bush delayed Israel loan guarantees until it halted its settlement building in the West Bank in Gaza and entered a peace conference with the Palestinians, what would later become known as the Madrid Peace Conference. He made clear the cost of an American president waging a political fight against the vast coalition of pro-Israel lobbying groups. In doing so, he exposed the limits of what the world's most powerful man can do when trying to solve the world's seemingly most intractable conflict. So this is uh, notable in that George H.W. Bush is um, a, an establishment guy to the core. He's one of the darker, more sinister figures in the U.S. establishment. He seems to be the kind of uh, link between the so-called Yankees and so-called Cowboys. Uh, you know, he's a person who left Connecticut, left Connecticut to go down to Texas and supposedly seek his oil fortunes and so on. Uh, but he's got, you know, CIA connections. He ran the CIA. He was later a big pharma executive, um, was the vice president, a very sinister one, and is involved in all sorts of chicanery. Uh, it's a and yet, here he was losing this uh, election in 1992. Larry Wilkerson, on a recent episode, said that he thought it was because of this. And I actually find that plausible in light of recent events and other events that I'm now reconsidering as I see the power of the Israel lobby to stop any sort of pushback from the United States government. Note here in the end in this article, Bush enjoyed a 70% approval rating. Um, while the American Jewish community was mobilized on the issue, it was not prepared to declare all-out war on the popular president over it. Okay, maybe not all-out war, but it did likely do things behind the scenes to uh, make sure that Bush wasn't elected. I, I can believe that. Larry Wilkerson believes that. It seems plausible to me. It would be interesting to know if they had any uh, role in Perot's candidacy, uh, because that's also something to consider. These third-party candidates... Uh, and then you look at Israel and man, our system, what a system. The bigger issue, which is now weighing down on all of us, also comes to the fore in the years after this, in the, in the early years of the post-Cold War world. And that's the issue of multipolarity. Um, this article is from 2009, but it's writing about the mid-90s. Uh, and the writer says... Uh, in the abstract here, since the late 1990s, the concept of multipolarity has gained prominence around the globe. Russia and China have included it or alluded to it in nearly all of their joint declarations, statements, and treaties dating from the mid-90s to the present. So this is significant. In the, with the end of the Cold War, you have the U.S. on top, and then very shortly afterwards, you have uh, China and Russia 
releasing statements saying that you know we shouldn't have a system where one country has all the power we need to be uh, uh, we need a multipolar world so what is the u.s response going to be to this well for one thing you have mcjihad in the 1990s so the u.s doesn't have the cold war anymore to say oh yeah we're doing all these things for communism but you have all these strange conflicts involving repurposed networks of islamist terrorists uh, taken from uh, Afghanistan, the Mujahideen networks, and they're used in places like Bosnia, Kosovo, Chechnya, uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, they use the they use Al Qaeda assets to try to assassinate Gaddafi in the late 90s. I mean, this whole era is very strange, and the U.S. is kind of clueless. And the cluelessness, I think, is really well represented by uh, this political scientist named Benjamin Barber. I was assigned to this book back in college, Jihad versus McWorld, Terrorism's Challenge to Democracy. And the blurb here from Barbara Ehrenreich, who I like, who is a nice socialist, but in general, with the American left, the clandestine uh, world is just like, they don't, they can't, they don't grapple with it. There's no real accepted, respectable mainstream body of discourse that looks honestly at the clandestine state. So as a result, we have uh, a lot of what, we think of his history as really a fake history. It may as well be the CIA's version of history. So what Barbara Ehrenreich wrote was, Mr. Barber is the first to put jihad and McWorld together in an inescapable dialectic. It stands as a bold invitation to debate the broad contours and future of society. Uh, but another scholar whose name I, I can't recall, he said, well, let's call it McJihad. I didn't really know that he had invented this. I actually thought I had invented it. But it was funny to learn that he had written about it. And it was similar to what made me think of it. It was that he had also seen Jihad versus McWorld. For me, it was my professor, Jeff Isaac, who assigned this back in college. Um, and it seemed interesting at the time. You have, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all these uh, uh, corporate juggernauts and the monoculture of, of American capitalism. And it is colliding with ancient, you know, cultural traditions. And then jihad is the result, right? It's like jihad is just a reaction to capitalism and to modernity. That's the way it was presented, right? And then Barbara Ehrenreich says, oh, it's this inescapable dialectic. Well, I would posit that this is uh, the deep state essentially mastering the dialectic and thinking like we'd actually like to get in, in control of this so that the opponents of our uh, agenda and of our, you know, hegemony are the most uh, unsympathetic people we could come up with. And so this is very similar to the way they use Hamas in, uh, in Gaza. Uh, jihadism is used as a way to make globalization, uh, neoliberal globalization and American corporate monoculture look good because whatever you'd want to say about the problems with Coca-Cola and McDonald's, it sure beats, uh, you know, people... Uh, who forced their women to wear burqas and who uh, chop people's heads off and stone them to death for adultery and so on, right? Am I right? But then the more you look at these uh, entities, you see like, well, they're supported by the U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia or CIA operations or other intelligence services like Pakistan's. That it's it's It doesn't seem to be this organic phenomenon, obviously. There's a, a report from uh, Israeli sources called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, I believe 1996, prepared by the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies. Uh, it's the study group on a new Israeli strategy toward 2000, led by Richard Pearl for Benjamin Netanyahu, then the Prime Minister of Israel. 
Uh, it included people who would go on to serve in the Bush administration, notorious Iraq war figures like Douglas Fife and David Wormser. Uh, and this report says, during the, in the middle of the text, at some point, says, removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq is an important Israeli strategic objective in its own right. So here you have these people, and uh, they are looking to get rid of, overthrow the Iraqi government, um, and, and have regime change, get rid of Hussein. Uh, and this is for Israeli security. This is a, a, a plan to get rid of that uh, regime that they don't like. Uh, and these are people who were would go on to be important neocons and architects of the Iraq War. Now, the more respectable George Bushian uh, part of the establishment, I would you could say, uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, is represented by uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the Council on Foreign Relations, the sort of ultimate imperial American think tank, commissioned Brzezinski to write a book about the U.S. plans in the aftermath of the Cold War, and he wrote The Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives. He argues that basically the U.S. needs to make sure that it controls Eurasia especially, it's the pivot of the world, and that it's imperative that no coalition, especially of China, Russia, and Iran, you know, united by common grievances against the U.S., could come together and challenge the U.S. hegemony. So it's basically empire uberales and saying that we should just try to make sure that we uh, control this pivotal part of the world so none of our uh, enemies can come together and disrupt our plans for global domination. And this is the more sober part of the establishment. He's not the, the neocon like, uh, you know, Douglas Fife, David Wormser, who we were just talking about. This is uh, the, the, the adults in the room, supposedly. Now, the more fanatical ones are the Project for a New American Century. And they released the report, Rebuilding America's Defenses, which calls for full-spectrum dominance, for the U.S. to continue to dominate the world in the 2000s, just like they dominated the 20th century, and uh, that they should look for dominance over every area of, of the globe, including biological weapons, outer space, and so on. They, they say, in one part, a notorious passage, they acknowledge that uh, this transition is going to be a, a long one, absent some dramatic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. And this report came out in the year 2000. The next year, they get their Pearl Harbor. You have the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and following shortly after that, the anthrax letters. Uh, I'm not going to get into 9-11 here. That's a deep subject. And you can read our articles about it that Peter Del Scott and Ben Howard and I wrote about 9-11. But the interesting thing about the anthrax letters, which followed afterwards, is that they purported to be or appeared to be from a Islamic terrorist uh, and made reference to 9-11. And you can read this letter, 9-11, uh, 01, you cannot stop us. We have the anthrax. You die now. You are, are you afraid? Question mark. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Well, uh, you put your detective hat on and you might think that this is probably coming from Islamic terrorists. Uh, because that's what it was supposed to look like, but it turned out to have come from a U.S. weapons lab. So some part of the American government actually did its job and investigated this uh, enough to know that it came from a U.S. weapons lab. But because it appears to be an apex crime, it doesn't go forward. And that's the, that's the giveaway, that it, that it wasn't allowed to really go forward. Instead, they just pinned it on some random guy, uh, Bruce Ivins, who many... who people that have looked at the case said he couldn't have possibly done it. He denied doing it. 
And then he uh, killed himself by taking a bunch of Tylenol, which is not the preferred way to go. It was very painful. Uh, and then they just said, oh, well, he almost killed himself because he felt so guilty about the crimes he committed. So, you know, case closed. Uh, but even the, the senators in the U.S., like Pat Leahy, uh, they were not satisfied with this explanation. And yet they don't make much of a stink about it because uh, I think they probably surmise that it, it's an apex crime. Even if they wouldn't put it in those terms, they instinctively know this must be bigger than me. Iraqi WMD, the pretext for the Iraq war. Uh, there's not much else to say about it except that you see the the, the deep events and the criminal conspiracies that uh, have to be plotted out beforehand to get a pretext for a war like this. Uh, and the most uh, the most notable thing is that there's no accountability for it. It's a brazen crime. It was a, 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 pa a whole pack of lies for an illegal war that was disastrous and was disastrous for foreign policy and killed hundreds of thousands of people, maybe a million people, who knows. Uh, and there's no accountability for it. Uh, the mission uh, was accomplished. Uh, at least that's what Bush had put on a banner right behind him in this infamous photo op. Now, the war in Iraq doesn't go very well. It kind of stalls. They actually had plans to go and take over all these other countries. As Wes Clark revealed uh, around 2004, they wanted to go on to Syria, Libya, Sudan, Lebanon, Iran. Uh, but it didn't go well because there was a big insurgency in Iraq. And in 2007, there was some pushback against these forces. The 9-11 Truth Movement got a little bit of mainstream traction. It was a little, that was strange. Uh, John Kiriakou, his, his terrorism uh, whistleblowing happened at this time, and he wasn't exactly the one who wanted to do this. It ended up being sort of put on him in a, in a strange way uh, because of circumstances. And uh, I suspect that it may have had to do with trying to get stories out there that would put the brakes on the uh, more aggressive national security state people. And the most uh, notable part of this whole effort to put the brakes on this may have been uh, represented by Brzezinski here. He goes in front of Congress in 2007 and says, oh, we need to be very careful. Uh, there, there's a chance that there could be a terror attack and it would be blamed on Iran and this would be used as an excuse to launch a disastrous war against Iran. So he was essentially saying there's going to be a false flag that's going to be used to start a war with Iran. Uh, and this, I think, was meant to warn these parties about, about doing this, about not doing this. Uh, and around this time also, you had the CIA or the new National Intelligence Office um, they, they get a new deputy director named Richard Immerman, who's a history professor at Temple University. He was actually my professor. Uh, and he was picked to come up with a new NIE on Iran and their nuclear capabilities. And he puts together a team to look at the intelligence honestly. And they find that Iraq doesn't really have any uh, active nuclear weapons program. And so it's, it puts the kibosh on the push for war with Iran. Um, but he was probably selected specifically to do that so that they would not have any ability to stay to uh, have a war against Iran. It shows that there's a conflicts. There are conflicts in the deep state. They didn't want this war with Iran, at least not then. And to, in order to get the CIA to do what they needed, uh, they had to call these people in. And this was under George W. Bush. So somehow people put pressure on him to get him to do this. It's a story that we don't we're, we've never really been told uh uh, the whole thing. But you see that there are forces that try to restrain some of these actors uh, to keep them from going too insane, especially, I guess, after the Iraq war was such a disaster. These people wanted more because uh, they were, they're insane.
But before we go, even trying to put a white hat on Brzezinski or take off his black hat or, or anything like that, a few years later, he comes out on, uh, on YouTube, but that's not the original source of it. He was at a Council on Foreign Relations meeting in Chicago, a dinner or something, and he started talking about global awakening. He says, uh, we are in the midst of a global awakening. The people of the world are tired of being exploited and dominated. They are very aware of their oppression and with new methods of networking technology, they're not going to take it anymore. Right. And it's like, if you're watching this and you know, Brzezinski and you know that he's one of the most technocratic, you know, creeps around and that his whole career has really been about trying to make the world safe for top down corporate domination. And you're thinking, well, has he totally changed his mind and now he's going to be a good guy? Uh, it's very strange. Uh, so what's the significance of this? Well, a few months later, you have the Arab Spring, so which is used to recommence those all those wars that the neocons wanted only under Obama. And instead of it being the war on terror, the pretext is basically like a, a freedom and democracy kind of psychological operation. Uh, I tend to think now that that was the whole point of it, that the, that the NED and other groups took advantage of circumstances to stage this big spectacle. I mean, if you recall, Twitter and Google and Facebook were uh, the, the heroes of this. And we know that they are not there to help us uh, participate in democracy in any way, shape or form. Right. I mean, this should we should look at this now and think, wow, what was that about? Because uh, any narrative that says Facebook and Google and uh, are, are the good guys, that's very dubious. Uh, and even from what we can find in sources like the New York Times, the U.S. was working with these groups uh, in order to our, that that helped to nurture these these Arab Spring uprisings. Uh, and then Time Magazine, you know, makes the protester the person of the year. They try to make this seem like cool and hip, and uh, it's just you know you've got Obama instead of Bush. It's like a new personality, a new flavor, and now it's like liberal liberal wars, progressive humanitarian wars that just happened to be in the exact same countries that the neocons wanted wars in as well. Oh, gosh, what a strange coincidence. So now we have Obama, progress, enlightenment, uh, of freedom and protesting and Brzezinski's global awakening. And uh, the, that's the, the, the package. But of course, the reality of it, I think, is best encapsulated. Uh, that picture you see on the right of Gaddafi, who was drone bombed by the US, and then uh, a bunch of jihadis uh, pull him out of a ditch sodomize him with a bayonet before shooting him in the head. Uh, that's our progressive uh, Obama version of imperialism. The Maidan coup also happens under Obama. Uh, civil society groups backed by uh, CIA or National Endowment for Democracy, whatever. Uh, you have Victoria Nuland passing out cookies, uh, poisonous cookies to the protesters to kill the protesters. Um, just kidding. Uh, she didn't kill them with poison cookies. Uh, they would get shot with uh, by CIA snipers, presumably later. Uh, but this was another, you know, U.S. regime change operation, a deep event, and it led to a war. Uh, you also have Russia Gate shortly afterwards, wherein uh, Russia is blamed for handing the election to Donald Trump. It's all very dubious. Uh, we don't know where Hillary's emails got hacked from, but uh, some people suspect it was Seth Rich, not. Uh, Russian, you know, horny bear or whatever it was called. Uh, we also have um, 
these memes on the internet that we were told were were so sinister. Uh, but when you looked at them, they were there weren't very many of them, and a lot of them were apolitical or just very stupid, like this Buff Bernie one, or other Jesus masturbation jokes that were uh, very juvenile, of course, uh, and don't seem to be part of any Russian criminal plot. It seems more like a clickbait operation, but. It was, uh, you know, this occupied the liberals uh, up to the present day. Some of them still will be like, Russia Gate was real. You just, you just, you must be in on it if you don't believe that. The COVID event is very bizarre and it comes from the clandestine parts of the U.S. state, uh, apparently, as Jeff Sachs found. It was related to U.S. biowarfare and he was running the Lancet's investigation on this. I'm not going to go deeply into this, but this is just another deep event, and it does seem to relate to the hegemonic panic, perhaps, of the U.S., uh, kind of a maybe a Hail Mary, hoping that it would create dynamics that would be useful for the U.S., uh, but it, it didn't work out that way, it seems. And then shortly after that, you have the Ukraine war, uh, and this is a debacle. You have the Nord Stream uh, attack, which was also uh, the U.S. More importantly, the war itself should never have happened. It should have been negotiated early. Putin really just invaded with a small, almost basically an expeditionary force. They didn't try to take Kiev. There was no way they could have with the force that they sent in. They tried to bring the Ukrainians to the negotiating table because every bit of logic indicated that Ukraine should negotiate with that, with our Russia, because they couldn't possibly win this war, uh, as we're seeing now. And yet the U.S. intervened and said, no, 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 don't negotiate. You're going to fight and won't worry you. We're going to give you the weapons to win. And now, you know, maybe half a million uh, dead Ukrainians later, the average age of the Ukrainian uh, soldiers, like what, 45 now or, or something? Maybe it's even higher than that. It was 43 about a month ago. I mean, this is uh, a catastrophe and it, it's, it doesn't seem to be going to, uh, it doesn't seem that it's going to be resolved in any way that is good for the U.S. I don't see how, if Russia wants this to be the case, I don't see how the Ukrainians can avoid unconditional surrender. Uh, it's it's going to be a, the biggest humiliation in U.S. foreign policy. Um, I mean, maybe the Vietnam War compares. It's hard to say. It all leads up to the Al-Aqsa flood operation on October 7, uh, which is a catalyst for the ongoing Gaza genocide, which uh, we should have a court ruling on that, uh, perhaps even by the time this comes out. This uh, event is horrific, but it is perhaps uh, brought on in part by this same issue of hegemonic panic, meaning that the situation of the U.S. in the world is so precarious that Israel, as America's partner in crime uh, for quite a long time, may have surmised that if we don't ha come up with some sort of final solution for the Palestinians here, we're going to find ourselves in this position without a global bully protector, the United States. And so we just we need to go for it. It's now or never. That seems to be the thinking, uh, and it remains to be seen if they will succeed or not. I think that they will not, because I don't see how the U.S. can broaden this war, and I don't see how Israel can survive with no global support at all. But these are crazy actors. They're not. They don't seem to be rational at all. Uh, and so, who knows what they're capable of? In closing here, I have a few slides that I want to try to wrap all of this up with. Uh, if you're looking at SCAD, state crimes against democracy, or deep events, and you're comparing these two frameworks to try to understand the, the deep and dark, hidden politics of, of U.S. empire, 
state crimes against democracy is a good academic and forensic heuristic. It's a way to to think of something and to have an idea of what you're looking at. With that, without it, you don't really have this. What is a crime c carried out by the state, but with a cover story that you can't look at or can't really interrogate and have to accept? Uh, and it has a huge impact on democracy. It really overrides democracy. How do we even deal with that? Well, we needed a term for that. And that's what Lance and other academics working on state crimes against democracy, that's what they were trying to provide. Now, Peter's deep events, uh, this is in a way more of a detached observation for the, for the sake of truth-seeking or trying to interrogate these. It's not as much of a operational forensic heuristic, like a way to have a shortcut to understand what's going on uh, for something to investigate for police, it's something different. There's also the issue of justice between Peter Dale Scott and, and Lance DeHaven Smith, SCAD theorists and, and practitioners of deep politics. Uh, I want to talk about what Lance said about justice and how you should deal with the high criminals who've been running the U.S. empire. He really was an advocate of solving the crimes and hanging the bastards. That's what he, would, that's what he said to me, literally, hang the bastards. Because I was saying, what should we do with this? It seems like these people are so powerful that maybe we should just like give them clemency if they'll just confess to their crimes. And Lance said, no, we should hang the bastards. He had a real southern drawl, and uh, he was very. It made him even funnier. Uh, I, I miss him tremendously. He died not that long ago. Peter Del Scott, on the other hand, seems to believe that a cultural revolution of the mind that could take place in many people. Uh, that this would be a, a way to move forward and that it could eventually lead to maybe a truth and reconciliation process down the road or something, but that revolution or a, a hostile, even a hostile democratic takeover might not be the way to go. He's encouraged by civil society movements like Solidarity, which I see as being essentially a CIA kind of thing with obviously organic support because people might not have liked everything about living under Soviet domination in Poland, but uh, I don't personally think that this is a good template, but he does. And um, he believes that uh, civil society groups could eventually lead to a kind of revolution of the mind and that it would make the empire no longer tenable. My own work is to try to provide a synthesis to SCAD theory and deep politics, as I said earlier. Uh, for me, the proximate root of the problem that we are facing uh, when it comes to these deep events, these structural deep events and these wars that are illegitimate and illegal, and yet we can't do anything about them, the major problem is the apex, okay? That there is no lawful sovereign. At the U.S., at the top of the power structure, we have uh, an entity that we can't totally see. It goes beyond just the president, because as we see with JFK, if a president runs afoul of the dictates of the empire, the oligarchy, the deep state, the establishment, whatever we want to call it, uh, that president can be removed and uh, with no recourse from anybody around the president or that president's family, uh, it appears. This is, this is the issue that we are faced with. We can't solve these crimes. It's not even necessarily helpful to know that something is a state crime against democracy because all that really does is confirm that we're never going to get to the bottom of it under this current regime, which is buttressed by the political economy of a global empire. They, they essentially have all the money in the world and that may, and they own the state, uh, and that makes them difficult for uh, a random person or even collection of regular people to overcome. 
So we end up just hysterically shouting into the void. It's a state crime against democracy. It's a deep event. It's a structural deep event. Uh, it's a false flag. We, what do we do with this? It doesn't even matter as with the anthrax letters if they get caught being the perpetrator. They'll just blame it on a random person. Uh, similarly, there was another episode like this too where the, something horrible was exposed. Oh yeah, the Ru Russiagate. When the CEO of uh, CrowdStrike, which investigated the, the hacking, said, uh, we actually don't have any evidence that the Russians did this. And this was kept secret from us for a couple of years. And uh, was, nothing came of this. They were like, oh, well, we still can't figure out exactly you know, what led to the whole Russiagate fiasco. But as with every empire, uh, they hang themselves. Uh, nemesis comes from without, generally, in the biggest sense, in terms of really weakening the empire. Uh, the non-West right now embodies humanity's desire to be free from exploitation and domination. They're really doing the heavy lifting, and we're on Zoom uh, conferences, or we're protesting, or we're watching YouTube. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these because this is the democracy that we have, such as it is. Uh, it's just that realistically other people are doing more than we are but we can protest and we can punctuate this with defiant emojis etc so what does this all mean well i decided to illustrate this with a irritating meme that you may have seen before so let's just let's see it let's let the meme tell us how it is wait it's all oligarchy. It always has been. That's really the gist of our problem. Civilization is synonymous with oligarchy, and that means top-down rule by uh, a, a class of super politico-economic elites. This is the way civilization has always worked up to now uh, in various ways, but however you repackage it, that's what it comes down to. It is a top-down world. Civilization gives us good things like Nintendo and the ability to fix broken bones, the bicycle, the automobile, other things. But it also is predicated on hierarchy. It creates oligarchy. It fuels empire and it requires a kind of hegemony, an imperial kind of hegemony to be established and maintained. Western imperialism has been the dominant force in world history for 500 years. So of all the top-down forces in the world, it has been the biggest one, we can say, Western imperialism. In fact, if you go back to the time that Western imperialism wasn't the most powerful force in the world, you'd be going back uh, to the time of Christopher Columbus, before Christopher Columbus. I mean, before we had any kind of advanced technology or anything, you've got to go way, way, way back. Meaning that what we think of as modernity has been heretofore inextricable from Western imperialism. Now, there are things that we think of as progress in the history of the West, uh, for some for good reasons and some are more dubious. But ultimately, the Enlightenment, which says that reason is the ultimate arbiter uh, in human affairs or should be, uh, and things like liberal democracy and, and quote-unquote free enterprise, a lot of these the emancipatory aspects of these have all been uh, farcical because it's always really been top-down. It's always really been oligarchy, no matter uh, how it packages itself. The Enlightenment says that all men are created equal 
and that that's supposedly self-evident. But what's also self-evident is that that principle is not in place in terms of deciding how society is going to be organized and run. That's just obvious hundreds of years after the Declaration of Independence is written. And perhaps a part of this is the foundations of Western political thinking. Uh, on the more neocon, realist, hardcore side, I mean, neocons and realists are kind of depicted differently as being in opposition to each other, but basically those who are kind of cold, hard, pro-imperial people, we think of as being more on the political right, and their ancestor is Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes said, it's a dangerous world, and so you have to submit to the sovereign who may rule in a top-down way, but, but it's necessary because human nature is kind of greedy and dangerous, and so you need a sovereign to uh, protect you. Now, the, the person who is the liberal and classical liberal hero is John Locke, <clears throat> and he believed that you should have the life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, right? So he worshiped property, more or less, and uh, he believed, just like Hobbes, though, that if there really was an emergency and a, and a threat to the state, you really have to empower the sovereign to act uh, however he decides to act, that he can't be... Uh, restrained by laws and such. So the difference really between Hobbes and Locke in terms of a, a sovereign authority that is unbound by earthly laws is, is mostly superficial when it comes down to it. This is something that liberalism needs to reckon with and it never really has. It's uh, the kernel of fascism that exists in, in, within liberalism. It means that ultimately liberalism, a liberal under, under distress is a Hobbesian. Okay, just like people say now a liberal under distress is a is a fascist or, or, or whatever, there's some truth to that. And philosophically, it's all it's right there. It's right there in John Locke. I write about that in American Exception, uh, drawing from the work of other political theorists who have who've written on the subject, and it's it's uh, striking. Now the Nazis are the bad guys in this whole you know Western narrative of like where you know the pro-democracy. Uh, narrative and, and such. And, I mean, the Nazis are bad guys pretty much no matter what your narrative is, unless you're a Nazi. Uh, but they they essentially take that sovereign power that has unlimited power and they make a, 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 a deify it, more or less. Uh, now, this is, they get the Fuhrer, right? Um, but this is bad public diplomacy, bad PR for the Nazis. And as a result, the Nazis were, uh, you know, uh, greeted with trepidation by the world, uh, even among the people that, that they conquered. This was bad public diplomacy to go around saying this, that we're gonna, you're gonna worship the, the bad guy who operates uh, as, a, as a dictator. Now the US defeats fascism, uh, but what ends up happening functionally is the US commutes fascism's death sentence. The US gives fascism a clandestine remake, which we can call the deep state or parafascism, it's a way, uh, a system of governance where the, the top-down sovereign that is unbound by law uh, is just denied. It's, it's said not to exist, that there is no such thing and that it's really just the law and the leaders are, are you know, operating according to democratic and lawful principles. And it doesn't matter how much evidence that you can amass to the contrary, that's the conventional understanding. Now, in the context of this disguised form of U.S. fascism, we have the fact that, as an empire, it seems to have run its, its course. We are now able to sit back and look at the rise and decline of the U.S. global dominance project, which was begun 
uh, with during World War II and kicked off immediately afterwards. Really kicked off, you could say, beginning with the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, two defenseless cities. Uh, and those bombings were, uh, in all likelihood, carried out in order to show the Soviets that we had these bombs and that they better do what we say. The U.S. consolidated all of Western imperialism, colonialism, everything, under a, what I would call para-fascist hegemony. So a, a disguised fascism presented as liberal democracy, but really if you are someone who goes against what the empire wants, then you will, you'll be treated, uh, you'll get the, the stick, the, the para-fascist stick instead of the liberal carrot. I think this is summed up pretty well by Alan Dulles when he was running the CIA and he was asked by a journalist, what exactly does the CIA do? And Dulles quipped, it's the State Department for Unfriendly Countries. For the U.S., what this meant, dealing with this transition to uh, U.S. management of Western imperialism, was that decolonization, the end of colonialism, because this was seen to understood to be a, an affront to human freedom and to be a, kind of a backward way of doing things in an imperialist way. And the U.S. was not an empire. It was the leadership it was the global free enterprise champion, right? Um, so they can't, they, they don't like colonialism. For, it's untenable. It's these nationalist movements need to be accommodated. And so that meant decolonization. But for the U.S., really what this meant was coming up with a neocolonial system so that the economic exploitation uh, that the West was able to enjoy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the colonized countries, this could continue under a new neocolonial type of system. And when the Cold War ended, this also meant the end of excluding China and Russia from international trade. This is significant, and this posed some kind of risk. Uh, this is possibly why this risk may be why a Soviet, a Soviet official told the Americans in the, in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse, we've done the worst thing imaginable to you. We've uh, taken away your enemy. We've left you without an enemy. This is what he said. And this is, I think, notable because it was difficult for the U.S. to manage these two massive countries in a way that would still allow them to maintain control over the global system. Dialectical forces in the wake of the end of the Cold War then propelled the rise of a counter-hegemonic bloc. What we would see now is the BRICS, but especially Russia and China at the core of this. And this was everything that Zbigniew Brzezinski feared would come to pass. And it turns out that Brzezinski and the Clean Break people and the neocons behind the project for a new American century, all of their crazy madcap schemes to try to hold on to American hegemony have only accelerated the decline and evaporation of American hegemony over the global political economy. They, they brought about quicker what they were trying to forestall due to the criminal hubris of the American elite and the people in charge of U.S. foreign policy. The question is, why did the U.S. suddenly st stop functioning as a rational and effective empire and start pursuing policies that were so stupid that they led uh, quite predictably to the decline of uh, U.S. hegemony, the exact opposite of what they were trying to achieve? This has led to the point that what we're experiencing now could be called a hegemonic panic attack. Uh, and it's, the result is that Whitey McDollar's life is flashing before his eyes. Whitey McDollar is the kind of stand-in I use for Uncle Sam, except just to describe the empire, right? Not the nation state itself. 
And this is uh, the crisis that they're facing is profound, I think, right now. And people, it's because it is such a new, uh, unprecedented thing, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to pan out. The, in the bigger picture, the two post-World War II fascist crusades are winding down. I'm referring to the parafascism of the United States uh, and the U.S. as this parafascist global hegemon, you know, like a supposedly liberal democracy, but really with a, a clandestine apparatus and then a rather not clandestine overt military colossus, which is the, you know, the Pentagon. Uh, this hegemonic arrangement is now dissipating. It's evaporating. That, that's one of the two, you know, collapsing fascist projects. The other one is Zionism, uh, which is an eliminationist blood and soil type of fascism. It's not that, fasc that, uh, it's not that Zionism equals Nazism and that uh, Zionism and Nazism are the same thing. It's that Zionism and Nazism are the same type of thing. And that type of thing is blood and soil fascism, eliminationist blood and soil fascism. This is a difficult thing to approach. There are taboos about speaking so candidly about this. Uh, and I didn't put this fine a point on it, or I wouldn't as often, even though I was never a supporter of, of Israel before uh, the Gaza genocide. Now I feel that um, this we have to reconsider our old ideas in the wake of new evidence. This is really what we should do as intellectuals. We should never have ideology we should never become first and foremost defenders of our ideology we should look to correct our ideology and improve upon it so we have a better understanding of the world so that our ideology helps us to understand the world rather than allowing our ideology to prevent us from understanding the world and i think that we have to try to understand how zionism has been a dark influence on the u.s political system the u.s weakness the, the U.S. hegemonic decline, the hegemonic panic attack uh, brought on by, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan failure and the Iraq war failure and this Syrian war, this amazing debacle in Ukraine. Uh, this weakness and the event, you know, the, the creation of the BRICS, the talk about de-dollarization and so on. Uh, all of this weakness likely spurred the Zionist final solution, which apparently they are trying to pursue now uh, and, and liquidate the Palestinians or force them to leave the country. Uh, but this, I believe, is counterproductive, just like these U.S. moves. I don't think that what Israel is doing is actually going to save itself unless things happen in a way that I don't predict them happening now. So it's counterproductive. They have been going too hard aggressively pursuing, you know, maximalist, imperialist policies, and it is going to engender... Uh, a, a severe counter reaction. I mean, the a public opinion on this around the world, the U.S. had something like 1% on its side during some of these, of the global population, uh, during some of these UN votes. We are totally isolated. And the, to the extent that we are not, it is likely just because of our pure power and that people are still afraid to openly confront us. But they're less and less afraid. It's remarkable that South Africa chose to pursue a genocide case against Israel and Bolivia has joined them now as well. These are two countries with long histories of being exploited by the white people. Okay, the biggest gold mine in the world before the one was discovered in West Papua, Indonesia, uh, the biggest gold mine was in South Africa and the you know British and Dutch uh, colonists, South African 
Afrikaners looted this for, for many, many years. The biggest silver mine was in Bolivia, uh, Potosi, this huge mountain essentially made of silver. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing the amount of wealth they extracted from that, the Spanish Empire. Uh, but now these two countries are standing up uh, and really dealing a serious blow to white supremacy. And so are the Yemeni people by uh, trying to prevent this genocide by attacking ships or, uh, and preventing them from be, uh, going to shipping to Israel. So the people in Gaza, the people in Yemen, the people in South Africa, uh, the people in, in Bolivia, uh, they are standing up and fighting the most powerful military colossus the world has ever seen. This is uh, re remarkable. And the U.S. is finding, and the Israelis are finding, that these are problems that they can't just murder their way out of. This has been the West's M.O. It seems that what we're witnessing in Gaza is as potent a distillation of what the West really is about as anything that we're going to see. Only now, there's TikTok, there's the internet, there's smartphones, and it's not hidden anymore. This is who we are. This is what we are. This is what we've done. The, the slaughter of Gaza is horrific, and yet it's like a fraction of what uh, the number of people that we've killed in other places. I mean, I, the Indonesia alone, 1965, is a, is a slaughter that I, I, you would have to kill essentially every Palestinian to, to equal that. It's, it's astounding what the U.S. has done. And its image has been much better than you would guess because most people don't know it. But that is different now uh, thanks to modern networking technology. A question that we are left to grapple with is, how much does the Zionist constituency of the U.S. deep state account for the empire's departure from sound realist imperialism? So at the top of the decision-making process, we ultimately have a black box, which we could think of as the deep state, this the opaque, top-down decision-making center. And we know there are many forces with power that can be brought to bear uh, when it comes to making these decisions, but we don't typically know what is ultimately decisive, who really gets to make the decision and why, what their motives are. That said, looking back on some of these things, especially uh, in the 21st century, it does seem that the Zionist aspect of this, you know, the people that wrote the clean break policy for Bibi Netanyahu, and then later went on to work in George W. Bush's government and were behind the Iraq war, um, this seems to be very much infused with uh, Zionist influence because they're the main beneficiaries of these policies. People like John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt, who are impeccable scholars, they point to how Israel has made the U.S. abandon good, sound, realist foreign policy and made them pursue kind of crazy uh, Zionist foreign policies that are not in the U.S. national interest. I think that these two scholars, even though they took a lot of shit for saying these things, uh, from the the people that from the Israel lobby because they wrote the book the Israel lobby, um, they got called anti-Semites of course. And now I think uh, I mean it's very strange. I won't say it's a badge of honor to be called an anti-Semite, but it's uh, it's essentially meaningless at this point, uh, thanks to the Israel lobby. So uh, great work there, everybody. Uh, but the thing about Walton Mearsheimer and their sober realist critique of the Israel lobby is that it likely only scratches the surface because. The, on the clandestine side of things, you know, things like Epstein or other dark things that they would have been involved with. I mean, they were involved in Iran-Contra um, and who knows what else. Um, we likely do not know the half of what Israel has done in the higher circles of uh, America's deep political system.
So it raises the question, is Zionism such an atavistic and reactionary force that because our regime is so opaque, uh, scholars have been basically blind to its very profound influence on U.S. foreign policy and even on U.S. domestic politics as well. Um, I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that it, it has been a malign force and that it has been protected by virtue of uh, the fact that the lobby is so powerful, people don't dare to confront Israel. Or you can get kicked off social media, you can get fired from your university position, you can get fired from your uh, job as a news person. I mean, there's really no institution that is able to stand up to American imperialism and no institution that's able to stand up to Zionism in the U.S. And these two twin fascist projects are very, very powerful. And uh, but they're also totally illegitimate in terms of uh, the stated values of, of, of the West and liberalism and all this. And so how do they persist year after year by really precluding any discussion of them in the first place by making certain aspects totally unmentionable uh, to people who want to have any kind of mainstream success. This is uh, a huge problem. After this Gaza genocide has is finished, after this current horrific massacre, uh, slaughter uh, is done, is there a redemption for the U.S. and the West? Where do we go from here? I think that with the American hegemony, uh, the American hegemonic project really uh, unsalvageable, we're going to have to reorient uh, ourselves. And it, it, there's really no getting around this because the, the chief part of the empire that makes it that you have to have no matter what is the ability to have the power to, to make the world, um, you know, see how it's got to be. You got to be able to tell the world how it's going to be. And I don't think that the U.S. has the economic or military power to do that anymore uh, and that that has evaporated and that we are left uh, with on autopilot with the crackpot realists doing dumb thing after dumb thing even though the, the they don't really have the empire anymore and they just don't know it yet so this has been functionally an american fear principle okay the fear principle which is just where whatever hitler said was like what you do right so it's kind of hyperbolic to talk about Hitler and Nazis, and it's like kind of frowned upon or mocked in, in some cases. But when you're talking about top-down despotism and imperialism, I can't think of a, a much better uh, example to bring up than Hitler. And in this case, I mean, they call it the rules-based liberal international order. I took those, all those words and smushed them together to make it all German, you know? And I think that that's really about the shape of it. It really is like, whatever we say is what you have to do, but we're going to give it a nice name. Like, they just gave it a, a better name, but it really is the same thing. Who is it that can stop the U.S. from breaking international law? Uh, there's nobody. Who can stop Israel? Apparently nobody, although we're, we may be running into the limits of that. This is, I'm very excited to see what happens. Another aspect of losing the empire, losing hegemony over the global political economy is that it would also seem to entail that the American deep state, the American oligarchy, is going to lose its one of its most port, important abilities, which is the ability to invent reality, uh, the ability to just tell everybody, the, the public in the U.S. and around the world, how it's going to be and what, what is and is not true and what is and is not beyond the pale. I think that they are losing that. Uh, and this is so they can't invent reality anymore they've invented reality by with media narratives and with covert operations where you use clandestine actors to make sure what happened and the police and the military and other places are so corrupt or inept they'll never be able to get to the bottom of it 
And then you can just say that whatever happened was whatever you want to say happened. And then the world has to accept it. And then people at Jacobin will write articles, you know, using your version of reality because you're the, the empire and they work for the empire. As far as things that we could look at in America or that we could cling to, and it seems corny or cliche, you can be cynical and jaded about it now, but I think that if there's something redeeming about the American project that we're going to have to cling to uh, in, the, in the wake of this empire, it's this idea of freedom. Okay, a global bill of rights, or as Henry Wallace was suggesting, trying to extend the four freedoms also uh, around the world and make them kind of the, the, the lodestar for how institutions should be organized. Okay, uh, preserving the Bill of Rights, medical freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, these are things that the U.S. should try to do. They, I am not someone who thinks that the U.N. should be turned into a global dictator uh, for countries. I think that there's reason to be very skeptical or uh, worried about international bodies like the WHO and their, the way that they could be used for despotic purposes of a global uh, oligarchy. And so uh, the Bill of Rights and other ideas of personal freedom and, and medical freedom, freedom from surveillance, etc., these are things that America should embrace more so as being fundamental to our identity. And this is a, an area where we can be a good example for the world, you know, so we shouldn't do things like get rid of all cash so that we can have a central body controlling all economic transitions, transactions. Uh, we shouldn't have mass surveillance of people. Um, we shouldn't have medical regimes that force people to uh, give up their fundamental bodily autonomy. Uh, these are things that the U.S. should try to cling to, especially as these other myths of American exceptionalism and imperialism around the world are just no longer tenable. What's needed is internationalism, not supranationalism. So internationalism meaning cooperation between nations. That's the inter of nationalism. Nation states exist, they're a fact of life, and we should try to cooperate with other nation states in a lawful way for our mutual benefit. At least the Chinese have that as part of their stated foreign policy, which is win-win foreign policy. And you can say that you can look at that skeptically, but the point is that that is not what the U.S. has pursued. And that is profound to think of uh, that the U.S. will not participate win-win relations with people, that what China is doing is a departure from U.S. foreign policy. That is essentially admitting that the U.S. has pursued win-lose foreign policies, which is a zero-sum game, and that's imperialism. That's the reality of it. We don't need supranationalism, which is one country dominating others or one political formation of some kind, a transnational oligarchy dominating the whole world. We don't need that either. We need lawful international cooperation. And if there's going to be competition, peaceful competition between nations so that we can avoid blowing up the world and we can start solving problems that are easily solvable. We do not need what we have now functionally, which is a, a globo sovereign the United States, essentially a global dictator who is seems to be drunk on with power or is a, a drunken gambler trying to somehow change his fortunes. I don't know which metaphor you want to use, but it probably involves someone very, very drunk and acting dangerously. Because what we're headed for is a multipolar world. It is changing rapidly, and what we see in Gaza is horrifying. And I hope that the slaughter ends as soon as possible and that there's some measure of justice for the Palestinians. Uh, and that this Zionist project comes to a close 
and, and changes into something totally different without bloodshed. I am not wanting to see any more um, Israeli people or Palestinian people uh, dying for, uh, for such a mad pipe dream. Uh, this, has to, this has to end. Thank you very much for tuning in. Please visit fordiedtrying.com and buy the prologue now on Amazon. Keep your eye out for chapter one, which should be dropping any day now. And please do subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to all Devil's Chess Club episodes and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. I hope that you all appreciated this presentation on the Al-Aqsa flood as a potential deep event. Whatever the bad guys thought they could accomplish with this, they seem to have miscalculated. We don't know how this will end, but the American and Zionist imperial devils seem to be headed for an inevitable defeat on their own chessboard.